Hello, you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney, and you're listening to the ninth monthly edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, which gives you the widest coverage of the Irish marine sector, on podcast and on community radio stations around Ireland. We start the September edition with the question, will Ireland get its own toll ship again? Will the government in the Republic support an all-Ireland sail training vessel? A unifying international community, which is what sail training is. So I said, that's why we put young people of the island of Ireland, this is your ship. It's also a stark reminder to the governments north and south that we actually live on an island that seems to have been forgotten completely. That's Captain Jerry Burns, one of the most experienced and respected master mariners in Ireland. He's originally from the great fishing port of Union Hall in West Cork and now lives in Newcastle County Down. And he skippered from Sweden to Ireland the 164-foot Grace O'Malley, bought by the Atlantic Youth Trust, the All-Ireland Charity, which wants it to become the sail training ship for North and South. Jerry making the point that the Northern Administration, as well as the Republic's government, should support the project. I'll be very blunt now in saying that Irish governments do not have a good record in the maritime sphere. It's studded with ignorance, callous indifference and disregard. Governments shut down Irish shipping and shut down the former Asgard National Sail Training Programme, which had served hundreds of young people, thousands in fact, abandoning what had been achieved by the vessel which had represented Ireland with distinction around the world. So how will the present government respond to the latest effort to provide Ireland with a toll ship by giving it funding? The Grace O'Malley has called to Derry, Belfast, Warren Point, Dublin and Cork and will be visiting other ports around the coast. I went aboard in Cove in Cork Harbour. It's an impressive vessel. Sitting in the bow, beneath her towering masts, I talked to Captain Jerry Burns about the project and the voyage from Sweden. Yeah, she's an absolutely beautiful ship and uh, fantastic um, sea kindliness. We, we had bad weather on the way home. The first night uh, north of the Skull, we had about 35 knots and three and a half metre seas. And we thought, we'd this is it, we'll have, a, we'll have a nice trip across the North Sea. Now we got hammered again and on a Saturday night south of Norway, we had five... About five metre seas, 45 knots, and she rode it like a duck. She was, a, she's a fantastic seaboat. She was rolling very little. We had one, we had the fore gaff up to steady her. We weren't making much progress. We were, basically we were hove to, but she was as comfortable as any boat I have ever been on. And uh, then we got, we had flat cam all the way across the North Sea. So we stopped in the middle and they all went swimming. I didn't go swimming because I don't like cold water. And uh, so then we got down, we were going down the Western Isles and we had lovely northwesterly breeze, about 15 to 18 knots, and we put a few sails up. We just had the foregaff, the main, and two little hankies up front, two jibs, and she was flying along at six knots, beautiful, comfortable, and everything. So if we could dress her fully, if I had enough crew, 
and uh, training and the equipment to get this one fully rigged and she'll fly she'll absolutely fly i've seen her out of the water in in in, in sweden and she has absolutely beautiful underbody beautiful shape to run into the propeller and the bow she's a classic she was actually the most photographed tall ship in sweden and uh, the best looking one what was she called when in sweden what was her role jerry her 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 first um, she was built by the andersons uh, the old man anderson we call him the old anderson man he had a, a shipyard and he had a, a beautiful wooden sailing vessel a trading sail a trading cargo sailing vessel called the ellen and she was wooden and she was very successful and he, she had beautiful lines identical lines to this on the hull and he made an awful lot of money and he thought what am i going to do with my money now that i'm retired and i'm i have loads of money and i want to do something for my son and his son lars eric old man anderson built this ship as a luxury yacht i'm going to build something beautiful i loved the ellen so i'm going to call in in memory of the ellen i'm going to call this ship the lady ellen and he a similar rig topsail schooner and uh, his son lars eric anderson he became the skipper on her for the first eight or nine years of windward cruises uh, out in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, the east coast of the United States, and she was incredibly popular and successful in the cruise market because she had a highly efficient crew and she was the lap of luxury. I don't know if you've seen her down below yet, but when you do, you'll be, you'll see that for yourself. It was no expense spared in woodwork, uh, in brass work, and uh, everything was uh, top top of the range stuff. She's had a mixed. Um, after the first nine or ten years, she had a mixed life. She was she's been sold a couple of times, and then she was used as a party ship, taking out people for weddings and functions and stuff in Sweden. So, we revitalized the, the ship by buying her, and we also managed to contact Lars Eric, the first skipper, and make friends with him. And he actually came from Sweden with us uh, on the trip home to Derry, and he absolutely loved it. Loved it was uh, like a new lease of life for him. He, uh, he's the same age as myself, so I think we talked all the way from, from Icaro to, to, to Derry, you know, two old sea dogs, and it was fantastic. You got a great welcome all along the coast, Everywhere. Dublin, yeah. Derry, Cork. Yeah, we got a fantastic welcome in Derry. Uh, on, they couldn't do enough for us. Uh, Bill McCann, the harbour master, the guys, I actually knew some of the pilots there. Uh, things I know most of the seafaring people around Ireland. And, and uh, yeah, everybody was so delighted to have her here. The, the, the reception we got uh, and the, the gratitude that they expressed to us and to the trust for actually finding the ship, buying it and bringing it home was, was unbelievable. What's the plan now for it, Jory? Now, I... We all go back to the time of Asgard, yeah, uh, and yeah. the removal of a sail training ship from Ireland was uh, a disaster, basically, for yeah. young people. Yeah. So what's the plan for this one? Well, hopefully we can get the funding and the ongoing annual funding. Uh, the funding first to refit, refit her suitable for sail training, because there's, the, as I said, it's a lap of luxury down there. It's not suitable for young people, trainees. We've got to get more people into her. We've got to bring her up to, to safety standards and we've got to um, uh, make sure that she has the highest standards of safety and efficiency, equipment, everything like that. And we're hope she, hopefully she will be the, the tall, well, she will be the tall ship for all of Ireland. 
north and south, basically to replace the job that was being done by the Asgard II and the Lord Rank and to be a, a uniting factor in the, among the sailing community and among the young people of Ireland. It needs, we know, government support and, yeah, and they, yeah. they were tardy tardy it has to be said with Asgard. I could never imagine any way the Department of Defence was committed to Asgard. That's a fair statement I think. Yeah definitely I I think we need we need help from the government both both governments north and south but I think the running of the ship and the operation of the ship should be left completely independent to the trust and should not should not have anything to do with the management or the interference of it. It makes it too precarious. We need the charity managing it professionally ashore and we'll have professionals running the programme. As you know we've done an awful lot of research into which will be the most beneficial and most successful sail training programme and the duration of the sail training programme. We, we studied about 28 different models around the, all over the world, American, Scandinavian, um, British, uh, Australian, New Zealand, and we actually commissioned people to, to, to actually undertake the study for us as well. And we came out with the Spirit of New Zealand 10-day adventure scheme for young people six, aged 16 to 22 was the most successful. They found that six or seven days was not enough to, to break the link with shore, to break the link with their communication and their friends and to actually get them fully functional as a team on board the ship. It's the, their observations show that they went through a, a sort of pain barrier like a runner would go through the wall around day six or day seven and they're licking salt off their lips on day eight and, and uh, supposedly on, on day ten uh, they will have to run the ship under our supervision and with minimal interference. They will have to appoint, uh, delegate and appoint a crew based on their assessment of whichever one of them is the best for each role. So there's a, it's, it's management skills, it's interpersonal skills, it's social skills, interaction, everything. It's, it's, to me, the whole thing is more about education than, than, than anything else. You were very strong there in referring to the banner. The banner says it all. Yeah, the, uh, the banner was, was a massive hit. We had to be careful with the banner. We didn't want to offend anybody. So I, I didn't word it. It wasn't me. I can't take any credit for it whatsoever. But so many people came along to me. And, and Derry was the first place where we unveiled the barrier. And they came along to, to me and said, "We, I love your banner, Jerry." I said, that's not mine, it's the Atlantic Youth Trust. I said, this is for all of Ireland. I said, we don't want to offend anybody. I said, it's for everybody. It was to be a unifying force and a unifying charity and a a unifying international community, which is what sail training is. So I said, that's why we put young people of the island of Ireland, this is your ship. It's also a stark reminder to the governments north and south that we actually live on an island that seems to have been forgotten completely. And the other wonderful thing is that they um, they decided to name the ship. All the, all ships should be named after ladies, as you know. And they named this. They're going to name the ship after the. Um, uh, one of the f- po- most powerful women we ever had, uh, Grainne Whale, Grace O'Malley. So we couldn't use Grainne Whale because it, 
it's already taken and it would be Irish and, and, and that. Whereas the fact that it's a Grace O'Malley and it's in English is another unifying factor for, for, for the ship as well. And uh, uh, the reception in the north was as good as the south, but everything pales in, in, in comparison with the reception we've got in Cove and Cork on the way up and now down here today. And uh, it's fantastic, and it's a total honour for me to bring her back to court because I never thought this would. I never thought that we would um, revitalise sail training in, in Ireland. I know there are programmes going on where we put people on other ships, and the, the, the Sail Training Ireland do a great job with that. But this is, should be the ship for the people of Ireland, their own ship for the people of Ireland, for the young people of Ireland. And finally, you come from round here. You come from West Cork, from yeah. a great fishing port. Yeah, well, I was introduced to the sea at the age of four by Mike Scully, my grandfather. And it, 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 it was love, addiction, vocation and profession for the rest of my life. And, um, you know, but like I said, other people in, in rural Ireland and in inner city areas and other places that don't have access to the sea have no chance to actually feel... Uh, live, eat, breathe uh, the atmosphere at sea. You know, the ocean is, is the biggest part of the planet. We call it planet Earth, but it should be called planet ocean, you know, because <laughs> you know yourself. So, m so many people miss out on the experience of being at sea. To stop, the, to put the sails up, to stop the engine and to feel the ship lift under the power of the wind and the sails and fly along uh, zero carbon emissions, totally environmentally friendly and totally free. No, you know, the wind is free and the, the, the freedom they experience is unbelievable. And Asgard too spawned so many um, people that wouldn't have gone to sea had they not had the Asgard. And the other, I think the outstanding thing that was completely forgotten or chosen to be forgotten was the incredible ambassadorial role that the Asgard too played all over the, the world. Like, how many times did she win the, the Cutty Sark Trophy as the little green ship from Ireland that contributed most to international relationships among young people in sail training? I mean, she, 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 she took it all. She, she was the the greatest little ship. For she was punching way above her weight and her size. And when we went to Australia in 1988, we got a hero's welcome because we were representing Ireland to the Irish community in Australia. And, and we, were, we were heroes, literally, even though we didn't have to work very hard, but we, we got her down there. And, you know, I think that role is forgotten. She is a representative of the maritime nation of Ireland and hopefully will be. When we get her right, she'll be the, she'll be the best looking, probably the fastest one of them all. And that's what I'd like to see. Captain Jerry Burns aboard the toll ship Grace O'Malley and recalling the former national toll ship Asgard, which sank in the Bay of Biscay on 11 September 2008. Ireland has not had a sail training ship since then. Former Defence Minister Willie O'Dea shut down the organising body Kushta on Asgard, which had operated under his department. In its 2009 budget, the then Fianna Fáil government introduced cuts, so Willie say, Saved eight hundred thousand euro on the sail training program. Little money for what had been achieved by Asgard. Truth be told, the Department of Defence didn't want Asgard. That was proven when insurance paid three million euros in compensation for Asgard. O'Day refused to allocate it for a replacement toll ship.
possibly advised by department mandarins, Willie O'Dea put the compensation into general department funds. As far as I know, it went to the Army Equitation School. So much for maritime interest. The 164-foot Grey Somali is impressive. It needs refitting for sail training. Financial support is being sought from the governments north and south. Northern Ireland executive funding for the ship was mentioned in Stormont's Fresh Start Agreement. What attitude will the Republic's government take to the request for support? Last month I told you about the crisis in the fishing industry. It hasn't improved. It's another example of national indifference to a vital maritime industry. Because of its failure to get Ireland a good deal in the Brexit fishery negotiations, when Ireland actually ended up with the worst in the EU, the government has approved an 80 million EU-supported programme to scrap 60 Irish fishing boats. I'm also deputy editor of the monthly maritime newspaper, The Marine Times, and writing there it seems that the most pleased sector about the scrapping will be the other EU nations which are allowed the biggest catches of fish in Irish waters and will have less competition at sea as a result. The scheme announced last month by the Minister for the Marine is being strongly criticised. The Irish Fish Producers Organisation says it's our government's solution to a historical legacy of failing to deliver for industry and coastal communities. The Irish South and West producers said that those who've put the scheme together should hang their heads in shame. At least 500 job losses have been predicted by the fishing organisations with coastal families losing their businesses. And the big question being asked in fishing communities, is the Department of the Marine determined to drive the fishing industry to destruction? I'd love to hear from the Department of the Marine officials about that one. Cape Clear Island is the southernmost part of Ireland, out into the Atlantic off the West Cork coast. The people of Cape are determined. It's an island which was once a strong fishing community, but now has only one fishing boat left. So they're turning to other outlets to develop the island and maintain its population. They're going to produce lavender, adding to the distillery also operated there. Seamus Odriskiol of the Cape Clear Co-op has been telling me what's planned. Yes, unfortunately, uh, the fishing has almost gone from the island. We still have one boat, which is, um, you know, lobstering in the summer. And that's it, I'm afraid. Uh, the Ord Costa, uh, which was, of course, our, um, you know, the, the, one of the oldest trawlers in the Irish fleet at one stage. And she's still here in the harbour, but she's tied up. But, but in fairness, they give her a lick of paint every now and again. And it's, um, it's still looking quite good. But it's not. I don't think it'll ever uh, go to sea again. That's a big change when there's no fishing on Cape Clear. It was once a very big fishing area. Well, yes. I mean, Cape Clear was uh, the prosperity of Cape Clear was built on fishing, and it was an extremely prosperous place between the late 1880s and uh, about 1929 when the crash came. So there was 50 years of prosperity brought by fishing, and then obviously fishing has continued since then. And so it's a huge part of the island tradition and of the island poetry and of how the islanders see themselves. And it is, of course, a great shock to people to see the extent to which it has declined. Um, it's, it's very sad to see that. 
you are replacing it on Cape Clear with other developments. The latest one, surprisingly, is Lavender. Well, Lavender, uh, the Lavender Project is an inspirational project here on Cape Clear. And it's the brainchild of two um, self-made men, uh, Joe O'Driscoll from the United States and a chap from Mike Daly, a gentleman from the UK, both who have um, who are descendants of people from the island who unfortunately have to le- have to leave in, in the bad old days gone by, and both of these gentlemen have homes on the island. Uh, they come here throughout the year, so I wouldn't call them holiday homes. They spend a lot more time and they've got more interest in the community, and um, they they also they are involved in other projects on the island. But this is an inspirational one because it ticks so many boxes. So it's number one, it's about agriculture. It's about uh, having a high-value crop on the island, uh, which is very easy to maintain. Uh, it's also about agri-tourism, uh, which is uh, having some interesting places on the island. Uh, not that the island isn't beautiful already, but at the same time, it does add something to the island to see all these uh, patches of lavender in the gardens and so forth. It's also very good from an ecological point of view, from a beekeeping point of view. And also, of course, um, there's some very active craftspeople on the island, and it's going to be another range of products um, that are, well, raw material for high-value products that they can work on. And, of course, in the distillery, we're very much looking forward to uh, making a lavender gin and maybe um, working on some of the other um, uh, products which require distillation. So sometimes, you know, you can distillation doesn't actually involve the creation of alcohol. It involves um, other like um, oils and essential oils and things like that. So we're very interested in looking into that side of it. So it's a project with lots and lots of opportunities for lots and lots of people. And we're very much hoping, and Joe and Mike in particular, are very much hoping that people will grasp those opportunities. And there's been great support for the project. And a lot of people are very enthusiastic about it. Well, with lavender, probably going for things, as you say, like oils, maybe perfumes and that kind of thing. And then the distillery, quite a modern amount of development. Well, the distillery um, is, is still there. I'd, I'd put it like that. And we're still working very hard to move it forward. Um, it's been a very challenging development. Um, there's been, you know, it hasn't been easy. It's been extremely hard work. But um, as the small group, including myself and others who have been involved in it, are continuing to work away. And um, we had some, we are, are the gin is, an, is a super gin. It's a coastal gin. So it's made using Laminaria digitata, um, which is a, obviously the, the seaweed, which is found just um, at the low water mark. And um, so like an Irish coastal gin is a particular type of gin. And one of the things we have to do as an industry in the years to come is to get uh, status like um, terroir status for Irish gin or geographical indication for it because um, I think it's something that could be very important in years to come and very important for the west of Ireland not just Cape Clear but some of the other uh, craft distilleries that are using uh, seaweed from the west of Ireland in their distillation. You don't give up on Cape Clear Seamus because I remember over the years Many things tried, some failed, some were successful. You tried aquaculture, now you're trying distillery, lavender. What's the motivation to keep going? Well, I can tell you what my motivation is, um, and it's very simple. Um, I came here in 1987, so I've been here more longer than I've been anywhere else. And um, 
I I adore living here. My wife and my family, we absolutely adore the island and everything about it. And it's been every, not every, well, I can't say every day has been a pleasure because we've had the odd bad day, of course, like everyone else. But uh, all in all, it's, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful place to live. And for me, I think the motivation for me is actually I want to see young children here when I'm an older man than I am now. I mean, that's really as simple as that, to see young families, young children, and to see this island deserves to have life continue on it. Not just like, obviously, tourism is very important um, for, for, for uh, income and for, you know, creating opportunities for people. But we want to see the island continue as a community. Uh, and that's really that's really the motivation. For listeners to paint a, a word picture, you're off, say, Baltimore, out of Skull and that. But everything has to be transported out to the island. It's really an island that lives by sea transport. There are two kinds of islands in Ireland. We, there are islands which we call harbour islands, where it's generally quite relatively easy to get to the islands. It's a short trip in, and usually they're not that affected by weather. And then we, there are what we call the Atlantic islands, like ourselves, which are you know three or four or five or six miles out to sea and uh, more exposed. And uh, obviously it's more difficult to get to the Atlantic islands and obviously transport is a greater challenge in the case of, uh, you know, islands like Cape Clear and Clare Island and the Aran Islands and Tory Island. And, you know, there, there's, there's a lot more challenges and, um, you know, in, in these islands than there are in the other um, islands that are closer to the mainland. But all islands have their challenges. Uh, and that little bit of water that separates us from the mainland uh, makes a very big difference in, in many, many spheres. Is there enough understanding now... Seamus at government level of the importance of maintaining populations on the offshore islands? Look, um, what I'll say is that um, there's been an awful lot of uh, goodwill on the part of every single government and every single um, minister and person that I've ever met and there's been a lot of goodwill and to be honest there's been an awful lot of money spent um, but I haven't yet seen a proper integrated approach to um, developing the islands. And sometimes I think maybe if they just stopped for a minute and um, sometimes they're throwing money at certain parts of the problem and yet they're leaving other parts of the problem uh, or other parts of the jigsaw unfixed. And at the moment, um, the thing that's really, um, I suppose, tragic maybe, it, it mightn't be, that's a strong word, but the thing that's really so obvious is that people will come and live on islands. People want to come, people with families. It's a great place to bring up children. It's, you know, they had a competition there on Inishir, I think 10,000 people. I mean, a phenomenal number of people wanted to, the opportunity to live on Inishir for, for a year. So there's a huge, huge interest. And the problem is that because of the way the housing market is and because no provision has been made to provide uh, gateway housing on any of the islands that uh, people who would like to come and try and you know come with maybe spend a year here or six months or whatever people who genuinely want to do that don't have the opportunity to do so and that's a terrible shame because you know I regard the islands are for everybody um, every citizen of Ireland has an interest in the islands and the people who want to have that opportunity should have it.
Seamus Oldreskiol on Cape Clear Island, a determined community. From there, we'll head northwest now to Kerry and another strong maritime community, the people of Cromon, which is famous for its oysters and mussels and where the Kerry Maritime Festival, Cromon Seafest, will be held this month. Pauline Moroni of the organising committee says it's the most welcoming place to go. Cromon Seafest is happening on the 18th of September. Um, so Friday night the 16th we kick off with our surf and turf barbecue that the Cremon Seafest Committee are going to be serving um, to everyone that comes and Saturday and Sunday then we have a huge lineup of you know kids amusements water activities uh, footboarding water trampoline with arts and crafts there's maritime walks food trucks cooking demos and then of course we have our own Seafest shop which will sell our own local Cremon mussels and oysters and the oyster shucking competition is basically the the star of, of the weekend, really. That sounds very interesting. Yes, it's brilliant, actually. So the world oyster champion, Stephen Nolan, will judge the competition. And he suggested to put the winner of the festival into the Galway Oyster Festival. So we got in contact and, yeah, they will represent Cremon at, the winner will represent Cremon at the Galway Oyster Festival on September 24th. So it's a great prize and uh, it's free to enter. You just have to register with ourselves here at Cremon Seafest and we get the ball rolling. And for the weekend itself, is it just a question of visitors showing up? Yeah, you can just show up. Um, there is parking fee, which is about a fiver. Um, but the barbecue on the Friday night, there is tickets to the barbecue. And any of the water activities must be pre-booked. So any visitor that comes can do that online um, at CremontCFest.com. And to be sure that you know where Cremont is, Sandra Healy of the committee provides the information. Cremont is a small, vibrant coastal military village. Tasmanian Harbour is one of the largest natural mussel beds um, and has been organised by the local co-op since the 1850s. And we're also renowned for um, wild salmon, one of the few in the um, island of Ireland now at this stage where it's actually permitted to fish wild salmon. We have a few weeks of the summer months where we're um, allowed to do that. We have a growing market for our oysters. They're sold internationally and nationally and they're really good quality. And I suppose our unique selling point is that our fresh water and our salt water intermingling from the rivers and lakes coming from Clarny and the Lown, intermingling with the sea water is um, an ideal ecosystem for the oysters and mussels to grow. All those elements, I suppose, make us world famous in terms of our oysters, our mussels and our wild salmon. The idea behind this festival was to promote Cremon and build on that reputation for quality. Anton O'Callaghan here with a look at maritime news and developments. The first of which attracted my attention is the survey going on off the southwest coast into two shipwrecks from the Second World War. It's going to be a pretty long survey because it started in the last week of last month and will continue until November. The wrecks are those of the SS Sanga and the SS Parthenon. Now the Sanga was a Norwegian flagged cargo steamer that was torpedoed by a German submarine in January 1940. All of its crew were rescued and they landed between Kinsale and Cookhaven. 
The SS Parthenon was a Greek-flagged steamer that was part of a convoy of ships sunk in an attack by German submarines in November 1942. Six of its 29 crew were lost. Ocean Infinity is the company carrying out the survey. It's a marine robotics company based in Austin, Texas, United States, and which has a base at Southampton in England. It was founded in 2017 and uses robots to obtain information from the ocean and seabed. On this occasion, the work is being done by the vessel Deep Sea Worker. There's no indication so far as to why these two wrecks have been chosen for the surveys, but we'll keep an eye on developments and let you know what we find out. In the meantime, if you'd like to read more about it, and as we like on this programme to ensure you have all the best available information, look up Marine Notice number 58 of 2022 from the Department of Transport. Now let's head northwards along the coastline from West Cork to the East Coast and yet another survey. There are lots of them going on around the coast these days. You would not be aware of them unless you closely watch the marine notices sent out by the Department of Transport, which we keep an eye on for the show. There is a second phase of development underway at the Arklow Wind Park off the Wicklow coast. It will go on until the end of October, weather dependent of course, as are all maritime offshore surveys. Two vessels are involved, the Roman Rebel and the Lady Kathleen, the latter which anyone around Crossaven in Cork Harbour will have seen regularly. The Department of Transport has been told that these vessels will carry out a geophysical survey to facilitate the development of the Arklow Bank Wind Park. And if you want to read more about this survey, look up Marine Notice number 58 of 2022 on the Department of Transport website. Now, the Irish Farmers Association doesn't just deal with farmers on land, but also on the water, and is pretty strong in representing fish farmers, the aquaculture sector. Its executive, Theresa Morrissey, is not happy with the Minister for the Marine, who claimed on national television to have supported the Irish seafood sector in the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis. She said he hasn't. Minister Charlie McConlogue appeared on RT's primetime show recently addressing concerns surrounding the Irish fishing industry. During the course of the Minister's response, he claimed that he has supported the Irish seafood sector in the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis. He hasn't. Neither Irish fisheries nor Irish aquaculture have received any direct support to deal with inflated prices of raw materials, fuel costs or loss of earnings as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, among other inflationary pressures. As ever, Irish aquaculture has been ignored, despite numerous requests for support with rising costs. Irish aquaculture producers have been experiencing severe increases in the cost of inputs over the past number of months. This has reached an unsustainable level with the Russian invasion of Ukraine with the the shortage of raw materials, increased cost of fuel and general transport, increased cost of fish feed and increased cost of electricity. Some fish feed costs have almost doubled recently from €1.20 per kg to over €2 per kg. Electricity costs will increase by an average of €100,000 this year for some aquaculture operators. Raw material costs have also increased with stainless steel up 55%, steel up 50% with no guarantee of price nor supply, aluminium up 55%, wood up 10 to 30%, plastics up 11%. All of these materials are widely used by the aquaculture industry. 
Some of our members estimate they will spend an extra €350,000 over the coming 12 months. This is not sustainable for Irish aquaculture operators and their businesses will no longer be profitable unless there are significant supports during this time of crisis to assist with spiralling input costs. I told you last month about the Galway Sea Scouts trip to Nawaka, the National Sea Scouts Festival in Netherlands. Well, just to follow up on that, as you'll be interested to hear, I'm sure, the exchanges on the visit went beyond nautical knowledge with the Galway Scouts learning about Dutch culture and building new friendships, which will endure into the future, I'm told. Galway Sea Scouts say they're expecting a few of the groups they met in Holland to visit Galway over the next year or so, when we can return the hospitality they extended to us and give them a chance to experience the mountains and ocean here on the West Coast, which is not part of their usual scouting programme, they tell me. Too true indeed. You wouldn't get the scenery of the mountains and sea of the west coast in the flatlands of Holland. But this is all about extending the hand of maritime friendship and the great Irish marine tradition and culture. We had a fantastic opportunity to provide the Dutch a taste of Irish nautical heritage as we brought Lovin, the Gleoetog, restored plank by plank by the Galway Hooker Sailing Association in a restoration project involving the Port of Galway Sea Scouts and the Port of Galway Sea Scout Gleoetoig to Nawaka this year. Supported by a crew from Galway Hooker Sailing Club, we were able to ensure that many of our new Dutch friends had the opportunity to experience sailing in the traditional Galway Hooker, they say. Well done, well done indeed to all involved, and particularly the Galway Hooker Sailing Association. Now looking overseas for a moment or two, what do you know about the dugong? It's believed to be the marine species which inspired the classic tales of mermaids. Did you know that? Hmm. Well, it was classified as a key protected species in China in 1988, after decades of being hunted close to extinction. The Chinese, whatever about their other characteristics, haven't taken much care of the dugong because marine wildlife researchers have declared it to be functionally extinct in Chinese waters. A study conducted by the Zoological Society of London and the Chinese Academy of Science don't ask me how they got close together to do this survey with international contacts these days being somewhat fraught but they did and found that there have been no verified sightings of the aquatic mammal for at least 22 years. A long time to be out of touch wouldn't you think? Incidentally the dugongs are also close relatives of the manatees which are known as sea cows. The problem for the dugongs in China is that there is continued destruction of its inshore habitat, particularly the seagrass that makes up the bulk of its diet, as the dugong is a vegetarian. There you are, even though it's a relative of sea cows. Now there have been many warnings from the marine safety authorities about the dangers of people getting cut off by incoming tides on beaches, showing, it has to be said, the lack of maritime knowledge amongst people. One of the surprising aspects of this was late last month when a pair of foxes was trapped on a sandbank in the North Dublin suburb of Baldoyle. Hoth Coastguard shared a video of the endangered animals on social media, pointing out that their predicament should be a reminder to the public of the dangers of incoming tides. Luckily, in this case, the foxes swam back to shore after the morning tide caught them unawares. So, a lesson also in the importance of being able to swim. Finally, a very serious note about safety on the water. 
The chairperson of the Marine Casualty Investigation Board has warned that regulations may well be required for water sports in the leisure marine sector if voluntary standards set by the accredited bodies are not adhered to. That serious warning is contained in the annual report of the board for last year, which says we strongly encourage all organisations, especially clubs and commercial entities associated with water sports and water recreational activities, to audit their safety systems and to have regard to all guidelines or recommendations issued by any governing sports body. Chairperson Claire Callanan says it is disappointing to note that in 2021 the MCIB continued to be advised of situations where little or no regard was paid to governing body safety guidelines. It's a warning, it seems to me, that the leisure sector should not ignore. Well, that's your roundup of maritime news for this month. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. You're listening to the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, which is all about Ireland's maritime culture, history and tradition. Our maritime service is extensive. We're on Facebook. Our weekly newsletter is on the Facebook page each weekend. And our website is maritimeirelandradioshow.ie, where there's a full library of our previous and current programmes, our podcasts and blogs. Your views on maritime matters are most welcome. Email to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. There are great people doing tremendous work in the maritime sphere, many of them voluntary, such as those in the Kuhn Bureau organisation, whose mission is to improve the quality of life, environment, economy and heritage around Galway Bay, emphasising how the land and the sea relate to each other and how important it is to appreciate this. Source to Sea is their educational programme for young people, which they demonstrated at the annual Galway Hooker Festival, Cranoona Maud, in the port of Kinvara. My name is Orla McHale and I'm a volunteer with Coonbio. They're a not-for-profit community group that are educating people about the connection between land and sea. And this year, for the first time, we did a pilot programme to um, teach the children in TY transition year about the sea and about the connection between rivers and the catchment area. And um, it was a four-day programme and it was very successful. The children loved it, full of activities. Yes, of course, we're very lucky here in Kimbara, aren't we? Because the school children have been so encouraged about protecting the beaches and not using plastic. I mean... At the last Cuckoo Festival, it was just amazing how the kids were out there at Trot picking up every bits of plastic. Oh, it was just amazing. So You're absolutely right, Christine. We're so lucky. We have a great base. We have a fantastic location. We have a great base with the children in the area because they already have fantastic... They're doing the Green Flag programme in all the schools in the area. They have a huge wealth of knowledge through their parents and through the teachers and through the environmental groups like Kinvara Tidy Towns, the Earth Keepers and our, ourselves now in Coombio. 
what we loved about doing the programme was we kept it very hands-on. They went out to the oyster farms, they went to the mussel rafts, they did stand-up paddle boarding, they did cookery on the beach with uh, mussels and, and oysters, which they absolutely loved. And also then we did a Leave No Trace, which is a hugely important aspect. And climate change, of course, we focused on that because the kids, to be honest with you, they're so brilliant and they are our future. They're fantastic because they're teaching us as we're going along, which is great. Yes, I mean, it's, it's going to be a great legacy here, isn't it, in Kimbrough? I feel very proud of what they've been doing because I've been doing this coverage now for five years and I saw it at the first one where all this was going on and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure how that was going to go, but it's been taken on by so many organisations within Kimara. We're very lucky, definitely, Christine. There was a very good group in the beginning. Um, Helen Lane and a few other uh, volunteers really got started. I remember the first meeting, there was 50 people at it and it ballooned from that and took over. And definitely, I think the legacy of that group particularly has yes. has definitely impacted people. So there is, you're absolutely yes. right, a huge interest. So um, how are you working? Are you going into schools and talking to the children? What we did was we applied for funding this year and we got flag funding through Europe. Um, we devised a programme and we decided we talked to the schools first to see what they'd be interested in. We targeted transition year because we felt that would be a good group to target. There's a lot of programmes for primary schools. We went into the teachers and they said to us they would love um, if we took the children out. So we decided to do that because, again, it would be active and hands-on and the kids would be learning through doing that interview provided by Kinvara FM, the local community radio station, and Christina Connolly, their producer. Also underway by Kuhn Bio is the Galway Bay Native Oyster Restoration Project. I'm Alec Reid. I'm an oyster fishery restoration officer and communication officer with Kuhn Bio. And uh, we work on a project called the Galway Bay Oyster Reef Restoration Project. And the goal of that is to try and restore the historic oyster beds that we had out here in Galway Bay in years gone by. Oh my goodness, so what's happened in the past then? Okay. Yeah, so there's a legacy of issues really, a multitude of them coming together, uh, so per fishery management plan, per licensing but then pressures from the land has been significant as well, um, so the increased amount of flood drainage, the increased amount of land use has put significant pressure on the marine uh, and the reason for that is that we don't hold that much water on land anymore, so so much water gets delivered into the marine environment that it's a huge pressure for, for salinity that drops away down it can take in pollution events and it can be sedimentation so that's when a bit of muck or dirt or particles will actually fall down and those kind of suffocate the oyster beds so over a long time nothing immediate but over a long time this uh, starts to see deterioration in the population and then when that's coupled with per fishery management plans when that's coupled with um, diseases from invasive species uh, that's a serious challenge for keeping an oyster population alive Yes, so you're talking about a long project here, then, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, a long project. So the the first thing that we do is, I know this is radio, you can't see, but there's loads of shells here beside me. And these are recycled shells from the aquaculture industry. Uh, And what we do is we use ocean models to identify the best area in the bay. Uh, This is the area that's going to be least impacted by freshwater impacts, the area that's going to see the least amount of heavily channelised water. And we can put these shells out and then oysters will settle on them. So over time, uh, they'll grow, they'll grow, they'll grow and then maybe after a period of 5 or 10 years we'll start to see a, a self-stocking reef, you know, and then it just becomes a matter of maintaining that water quality and, and making sure that the water quality in that area is substantial for the oysters. 
it's a massive bay and there's so many freshwater inputs so there's the Oranmore, the Carb, Clare they all come down into it the Dunkel and the Ballinamana yes. um, the Claren River and then because we're in the burn there's a lot of groundwater being delivered in yes. so what that, that's a huge catchment that's a massive area that will ultimately drain into Galway Bay so what's important to have in those areas is if we can have places where we can retain water so as much as we're, we're treating water to improve it we need to try and retain more water on land so that when there is a huge rain event it's not all immediately flushed out into the bay because that's when we start to see those pressures of of salinity dropping arising. So that's what you mean you're going to have some plans in place to retain the water yeah so um a lot of like so half of the work that we do for marine restoration we'd also like to see uh, on on the land land-based restoration so you know if houses maybe have uh gutters a lot of gutters maybe they could go into a rain planter first or if the septic tank could go in through a percolation area if we could do leaky dams and stuff and then really what would be massively beneficial in the long term would be if we could reinstall some wetlands you know some areas that we let flood and hold a bit of water because um, that would slow down a lot of things so so first of all it would slow down the amount of water coming in which is brilliant because that means that the water can remain more saline for marine animals but also it gives a chance for nutrients so like if there is nutrients getting in there from urban wastewater from agricultural wastewater from industrial wastewater uh, it has more time to seep out through a percolation area so it is more time maybe we could run it through a willow system we could run it through a reed bed system and that'll flush it out and so as much as we're lowering the challenge of freshwater coming into the bay we are also reducing the challenge of uh, pollutants coming into the bay through whatever form of nutrient enrichment that really would work, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, they're they're fantastic. They're fantastic. They're really good because they do those two things. Um, one is they actively suck nutrients out, you know. So, and yes. as they actively suck nutrients out, yes. that leaves less nutrients available for algae to bloom. So, when there's less nutrients available for algae to bloom, because the pressure of algae blooming is they'll die eventually, and then I'll take all the oxygen yes. out of the water as they decompose. So, they're fantastic for taking that nutrients out. So, they control algae populations in that regard. And then sometimes those nutrients can be directly poisoned to fish species as well but at the second time as they slow down water you know because they create a kind of a soggy wetland so they slow down water coming down so the river has a much more of a chance to process anything that's coming into it it is tremendous the amount of nutrient recycling these plants can do so they natural wetland bogs they come out because naturally these plants do like to take phosphorus they do like, they like to take nitrogen you know and they put it into their own root system and it makes them a lot stronger so through and a lot of plants are actually Irish native plants as well so there's a willow hybrid you can use which is all Irish native and then reed system and an Irish flag as well the flag plant yeah and it's just they, they just love to pull they love their bloom and they pull and they pull and all the nutrients out you're hoping that oysters will come back are you dependent on them naturally coming back or do you have to get Okay, yeah, so we um, depend on the natural stock, but also we engage in uh, laboratory-based oyster production. So there are ponds, Euler Knellen has ponds here in Clare, um, and he produces a certain amount of spat each year. So primarily, though, we still have a small oyster population in Galway Bay, um, so we put shells out, and hopefully they will be stocked with wild oysters settling on them. That's going to be the majority of what builds them up. But then, as well as that, we will engage in some uh, inland batten pond production uh, with BIM um, Irla Canal and Marine Institute and that's for two reasons really it's just to give an extra boost you know to give an extra boost yes. but also um, through doing that on land stuff as well we can start to 
to study better how settlement actually works and, and that'll all in turn help us in, in the bay so we've wild mussel settlement in the bay too um, and yeah no there's a challenge so uh, out past Island Eddy I know uh, the mussel recruitment is much better than the inside yes. Island Eddy so obviously it, it's suffering the similar issues of freshwater and stuff like that um, it wouldn't be my expertise I would more be focused on the oyster but um, the, it's the same idea so it's molluscan bivalve recruitment so these molluscan bivalves they need a clean surface to 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 attach themselves to uh, they need good salinity water quality and they need a nice water temperature and all that is maintained when their marine environment doesn't suffer too much pressures from land-based pollution or freshwater discharges Restoring the Galway Bay Oysters and that interview also provided by Convara FM and interview by Christina Connolly. Thank you to them. Community Radio has a big reach around Ireland and both in Galway at Cremon and on Cape Clear. From where we heard earlier, there are great communities working together in the maritime sector. Anacotti Weir in the Shannon catchment is on the lower Mulcair River, a very important one for a range of fish species. But the weir is a problem, a blockage to the movement of fish, and it's one of thousands of river barriers which have been identified around Ireland by the state inland fisheries body that have to be dealt with. Miles Kelly from Inland Fisheries explains the situation. Now, a healthy river is one long connected continuous series of habitats. Unfortunately for many Irish rivers, this connectedness is broken up by weirs, dams, sluices, culverts, bridges, and other artificial barriers. We call this breaking up of a river's continual flow from source to sea, river fragmentation. And river fragmentation is one of the greatest global threats to freshwater ecosystems because it interrupts fish migration, blocks the movement of fish and other animals within the channel, alters the flow of sediment throughout the channel, affects habitat diversity and impacts overall biodiversity. The National Barriers Programme deals with issues related to barriers and works to reduce their impact. So far, Inland Fisheries Ireland has surveyed almost 22,600 structures using the assessment tool developed specifically for the programme. And of these, 175 structures have been further surveyed using a secondary assessment tool, which identifies potential mitigation measures. Anacotti Weir on the Mulcair River in County Limerick is one of the barriers that has been surveyed and it has been identified as a significant barrier to the free movement of fish. What this means is that the weir negatively impacts on survival rates for species such as salmon, the three species of lamprey in Ireland, sea, river and brook, wild brown trout and eels. Inland Fisheries Ireland recently secured just under €100,000 from the Salmon and Sea Trout Rehabilitation, Conservation and Protection Fund for the Anacotti Project. The ultimate goal of the Anacotti Fish Passage Project is to improve fish passage at Anacotti Weir on the River Mulcair for those species mentioned, being salmon, sea lamprey, river lamprey, brook lamprey, eels and trout, helping them migrate both up and downstream over the weir. But what this money will be used for is to support the assessment and planning phase of this project. Further assessment is needed at Anacotti as it's located within the Lower River Shannon Special Area of Conservation. It's worth remembering here that the weir dates from 1749 when it was built to redirect the river's flow to a water wheel 
which powered the paper mill on the riverbank at Anacotti. The river channel is heavily modified and whatever works done must ensure they don't impact adversely on the road bridges just downstream, any of the properties in Anacotti or the historic mill itself. And of course works must be sensitive to the needs of other animals and plants in the river apart from the fish whose access to the river above the weir we're trying to restore. There's clearly a lot going on here and a lot of interest groups who need to be consulted with along the way. As part of this, Inland Fisheries Ireland hosted an information evening on August 23rd in Limerick to make more people aware of the Anacotti Fish Passage project and to highlight potential solutions to the problems that the weir is causing Ireland's fish populations. It was a well-attended event, Tom, and almost 60 people turned out for the meeting at Castle Troy Park Hotel. Attendees included members of the public, representatives from community groups, local angling clubs, Anacotti residents, government departments, state agencies and a range of environmental organisations. There were also a few public representatives in attendance. There were presentations by OFI staff where Brian Coughlin, a research officer with the National Barriers Programme, demonstrated how the weir acts as an artificial barrier to certain fish species and the resulting problems for their life cycle. After that, Alan Culla, one of our fisheries development inspectors, talked about how problems could be overcome and what solutions were being used in Ireland and internationally to improve fish passage at barriers. Finally, a panel discussion took place with questions from the audience. It was encouraging to see the public interest in this project and hear the views of the public, which will help inform the most appropriate solution for improving fish passage at Anacotti. A project like this requires input from many different government bodies. An interagency group for the Anacotti Fish Passage Project has been set up. Anyone who's interested in more information about the Anacotti Fish Passage Project can find it at fisheriesireland.ie forward slash Anacotti. Away now to France and La Sable de Lone, the starting point of the single-handed non-stop round-the-world race, the Golden Globe, in which Ireland's solo sailor Pat Lawless from Kerry is taking part. Probably eight to nine months alone on his 36-foot yacht Green Rebel. In the week before the start, the organisers hit Pat with a fine of €1,000 and a compulsory 300-mile celestial navigation voyage, but it hasn't phased him. We've been following his preparations. So how did he feel just before the start of the voyage? I submitted my celestial logs two years ago and they were passed, but then there was a question where they exactly what they wanted and they had lost them and I didn't have a copy of them and... I went out for a 300 sail, and before the sail was stressful, and after it was a bit stressful, but the sail itself was great, and there was no problem with the celestial stuff. Like, you know, it was nice to get away, but yeah, it's, it's all done and dusted. And... You didn't let it phase you anyway? No, I did for a while, actually, but anyway, it's done, yeah. And did they find you as well, Pat? Yeah, 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 I paid a thousand little fines, fines and anyway. But it's done, <laughs> I've moved on. So how are you prepared now for the start? Good, I'm good. I still am just going to go back up to Mass now and I have a great Mass letter that I got from a company in England, Levin Marine, and they donated it to me and harness like so I can fly up and down the Mass stretch up. And I'm doing work on the Mass at the moment and I have to go up to the top and go up to another spinnaker hellage and moving the one I have, I think, slightly, it's, it's rubbing out the, the first step. The, the, the roll in Berlin, I'm just going to move that a bit and two other jobs. But, so that's, yeah, it's getting down to smaller jobs anyway. And this is something I put up till I got the ladder. And Green Rebel is looking well and fit for the long voyage? It is. It is looking good. And, yeah, Green Rebel will make the finish, I hope. How many will make the finish is the question. 
Well, there's been great support for you. There has. Ireland are great. Ireland are fantastic. You know, they have the all metal system and they support people. And and West Kerry, there'll be a big game here from West Kerry and Limerick and other places in Ireland the weekend. Fair sailing to Pat Lawless. And with that, we end the September edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. Keep in touch with Maritime Affairs here on the show and on our website, maritimeirelandradioshow.ie and also on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. By phone or text 0872 555 197. That's 0872 555 197. Email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com where your views are always very welcome. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime community. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing. Mm-hmm.